This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather around the teaching of your word, to study your word this morning, that we may be refreshed by your truth. Father, we thank you that we have the freedoms that we have in this nation to gather together in this way. We thank you for the way you continue to watch over us, protect us, and to give us security. Father, we know that our only security is in you. It does not reside in either our military forces, security forces, or armed forces or police, but we know that that through them you guarantee our security. Father, we pray that you would continue to uh, give them the abilities to spot, to discover those who would do us harm. We pray that you would continue to foil the plots of those who would attack this nation. Father, we pray for those who are from this congregation, those who are uh, listening to tapes that are stationed even now and uh, places in the Middle East, as well as in Pakistan, other places in the world, we pray that you would watch over them, that they would be a faithful witness for you, that uh, they would have many opportunities to share the gospel, and that you would bring them home safely. We also pray for those who are overseas involved in uh, civilian capacity, that you would watch over them and protect them. Father, we pray for Jim Myers as well today as he flies to the Uh, northern area of Brazil, and with all the tremendous opportunities he has this week to communicate the gospel, we pray that you would uh, keep him strong physically, healthy, uh, give him the energy he needs, and, Father, we pray that he might have a a fruitful ministry in that area. And Father, we just pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. This morning we're continuing our study on who is Jesus. As I've said again and again, it is so important today to be able to clearly articulate your understanding of who Jesus is, not simply that you believe that he is God, but that you also are able to uh, define what you mean by that, that he is both God and man, and that you be able to go to the Scriptures and show why you believe what you believe. 
this is an incredible time right now for, for witnessing, I think, with, with the movies, as I've said before, The Passion of the Christ is out there, the book I reviewed last week, The Da Vinci Code. These are current cultural events that are having the man on the street talk about Jesus Christ. And this gives you an opportunity, perhaps even in places where you might not have an opportunity, to talk about the gospel it may happen at work. It may even happen in the school classroom, as long as nobody catches you. It might happen in a courtroom somewhere. My. But everybody's talking about it. So this gives us an opportunity to communicate. But you have to know what you're talking about. You have to know what's going on in, in the community around us. And we have to know what's going on in the scriptures. You have to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. Now, what have we been doing in this series? There is a logic to my approach. We started off in the Old Testament, and then we are now in the New Testament. And the focus is, what does the Bible teach us about the person of Jesus Christ? This study is part of what is known in theology as Christology, that is, the study of what the Bible teaches about the person and work of Jesus Christ. The way I have broken this down, we covered pretty much the work of Christ when we did a short series like this about a year and a half ago on what is salvation. So we're focusing on who is Jesus. What does the Bible teach us about who Jesus is in his person? We started in the Old Testament. The reason I started in the Old Testament is because in our contemporary world, with the liberal assaults of the Jesus Seminar and various other proto-Gnostic groups or quasi-Gnostic groups or neo-Gnostic groups, there is a challenge to Jesus' deity, that he really isn't God. And this is the claim in the book, The Da Vinci Code, uh, there's other books out there. I was just browsing through the new um, uh, Borders bookstore down here in uh, Waterford yesterday in the religious section and saw a number of books in the religious section that all deal with these various themes. In fact, uh, John Dominic Croson may be a name familiar to any of you who have watched any of these religious programs on A&E or the Discovery Channel. He's frequently uh, quoted. He's frequently interviewed. He was one of the leaders in the Jesus Seminar. Uh, he is. He doesn't believe that the Gospel of John has anything to do historically with what Jesus said. He probably believes less than 10% of what's in the Synoptic Gospels actually is related to what to any kind of historical reality in Jesus. You have to realize that most of the people that are gone to as experts for religion in most of those shows on that you see on secular television don't believe the Bible at all. They are not um, they're not conservative in their view of scripture at all or in their theology. And so when you watch that stuff, because most of you have not spent thousands of hours studying some of these issues, you can easily be led astray because they do it just based on different things. They didn't have dating 
uh, dating systems on something. And next thing you know, you're suckered and you've been taken down the primrose path because you don't understand all the fine details related to uh, dating the Exodus or dating Moses in the second millennium B.C. And it, these aren't necessarily simple tasks. So, so you have to be very careful. And these people come up with their great credentials and they, they teach at some, in some religious department at some major, uh, university somewhere and perhaps at one time it was solid and so you get, you get sucked into it. And it's amazing. I mean, don't sit there and think, well, that's not going to happen to me. Recently, there was a 20-minute little segment on 60 Minutes. Some of you saw it when they interviewed. Really, the original interview was set up to interview Tim LaHaye, Tommy Ice, and some of the other men who are associated with the Left Behind series and the pre-trib rapture study group. And the original purpose that 60 Minutes interviewed them was to talk about the impact of the Left Behind series as a cultural phenomena in America, because whether you realize it or not, if it's a religious book, if it's a Christian book, it's not going to show up on the New York Times bestseller list, even though it may outsell every book on there and may do so for weeks. It'll never show up there if it's a Christian book, so and, and it won't get the publicity that a secular book will get. And yet here you have a phenomenon like the Left Behind series that has just set incredible records in the publishing industry. So they interviewed Tim LaHaye, Tommy Ice, these other guys, and then they decided to repackage the deal on the impact of these wild-eyed, they didn't use that word, that's mine, that was the presentation, these wild-eyed conservative dispensationalists on uh, contemporary politics. Now, isn't that a shift? Well, the last, what they did was if, is they took these male, white, conservative dispensationalists and juxtaposed them with a black representative of the established, uh, schools Harvard. This guy's name is Peter. I'm not sure how you pronounce whether it's Peter Gomez or Peter Gomes, G-O-M-E-S. And yet most of us don't know who the bad guys are any more than most of you probably know who the good guys are. And this guy comes on, and he really didn't say anything bad, but neither did he say anything good. But his last statement really told you where he was coming from. And I'm amazed how many people listened with so little discernment and they didn't realize this is in our generation this man is the leading proponent of liberalism in America he is the head of the theology department i believe at up at harvard divinity school this guy falls in the in the um follows in the footsteps of harvey cox and um uh, paul tillich and others who have been liberal proponents of Protestant liberalism who are uh, don't believe a word of the Bible hardly. I mean, when Paul Tillich died, he had the largest personal private collection of pornography in the Western world. I mean, these are just great, great men of faith. And so the, the last statement, the parting shot from Peter, Peter Gomes is, well, I'd rather believe Jesus 
than these evangelicals. And I'm amazed how many solid doctrinal believers thought, that what a great statement, he's going to trust in Jesus. Listen to what he said. He's going to trust in Jesus rather than dispensationalists or evangelicals or conservatives who believe the Bible. Because his view of Jesus isn't a biblical view of Jesus because he, like the folks in the Jesus Seminar, have thrown out what the Bible says about Jesus. Their approach is that that's just some 2nd century or 3rd century myth or legend that grew up around Jesus. But once we get rid of all that, we can find the historical Jesus, and, and that's who I'm going to trust. So you have to think with a lot of discernment when you watch these things on TV because you don't necessarily know who all, all, all the players are. I don't always know who all the players are. I try to keep up with what's going on, and most of you were here when Tommy was here a few years ago. We're going to have to have Tommy back, aren't we? He's got some great new stuff on neo-anti-Semitism, let's say, and how that's developing. And and he spoke last week at the Chafer Seminary Pastors Conference, and I heard some tapes from when he was over in New York a few weeks ago, and he's getting a contract with Harvest House on a book on the new anti-Semitism. We'll get him back. But when I mentioned that to Tommy, I said, well, don't you know who that, that uh, uh, black theologian was there at the end of the section? He said, no. Tommy knows who everybody is. So it's easy for the, for the media, the secular media, to pull in names that sound like they're really somebody and they really know something about the Bible. They've written all kinds of books. They're the professor of Greek or Hebrew or theology at some school you, whose name has great recognition. But many of these people deny the, either the humanity of Jesus, but especially today, they deny the deity of Jesus. They want to say that Jesus is just, uh, just a man, and that allows for the, them to open up tremendous, uh, a tremendous door to heresy. Well, in the last few weeks, what we, what we have done in our overall study here is to look at the fact that the deity of Christ didn't, wasn't invented sometime down here in two or three hundred AD, like at the Council of Nicaea or something like that, but that the deity of Christ goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and there was a clear strand of prophecy in the Old Testament that clearly taught that the Messiah would be divine. And then when we get into the New Testament, we see that the New Testament picks that up and shows that Jesus was fully God. And this is the teaching of the New Testament, and it's clear that the New Testament was written during the first century. Even some liberals, it used to be liberals tried to late-date it into the second and third century, but there are even some liberals who realize it all had to be written uh, by, uh, by the end of the first century. And then we focused on another stream. Of data, and that too goes back to Genesis 3:15, and that that the the promised Messiah would be fully man, the seed of the woman, and these two streams merge in the person of Christ at the virgin birth, virgin conception, and virgin birth in the in the Old Testament, and the emphasis here is that the virgin birth is not some secondary doctrine that just gets invented in the 2nd or 3rd century, but that the virgin conception and birth of, of Jesus Christ is essential because that is the way that eternal deity t- 
takes on humanity. And you have the union of, of deity and humanity in the one person of Jesus Christ. Without the virgin birth, Jesus is just a man like the rest of us. And that means he would inherit a sin nature through his parents and he would be a sinner. He wouldn't be impeccable. Therefore, he could not go to the cross and die as our substitute. And so you have the union of uh, deity and humanity in one person. So we started off looking at the deity of Christ in the Old Testament, the deity of the Messiah in the Old Testament, then the humanity of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Then we looked at the deity of the Messiah in the New Testament in terms of the virgin birth, prophecies, promises related to the virgin birth, the genealogy, how all of that demonstrated it. And then last week we looked at the issue as it's distorted in the Da Vinci Code, and this morning we're going to focus on the humanity of the Messiah, evidences for Jesus' humanity. This is not so much a problem in the modern church as it was in the ancient church because of Gnosticism. They did not believe that that um, God could be a true man, take on flesh, become part of material, uh, uh, have a material corporal nature. Uh, that was the influence of Greek thought. For example, I can't do this. I should have. Well, you can't even do it on a computer very well. But let's say I had a, just for imagination's sake, a perfect equilateral triangle up here. And you would you would think, gee, that's perfect. The one you're seeing isn't, but you think, boy, that's a, that's perfect if there were straight lines. Then you take out a microscope and you start to look at some little section there and you realize that that, that line of ink isn't as solid as you think it is, that there's all, all manner of holes there and it's ragged on the edges. It's not perfect. You could get, take out a computer and using a sophisticated graphics program perhaps try to draw a perfect triangle. But then as you enlarged it to start to look at the, the, the pixels, you would realize that, no, it's, it's not that perfect either. It's ragged. There's all kinds of holes there. And in Greek thought, nothing in this world, in the physical corporeal world, was, was perfect. It was merely a reflection of the ideal world. And so anything that was instantiated in this world as physical or corporeal could not be perfect. It would be less than perfect. So if God became a man... Just by the very act of becoming a man, becoming flesh, becoming corporeal, he would become less than God. It would destroy his perfection. He would no longer be perfect. He would be subject to to sin. He would be subject to fallibility and subject to loss. So in Gnosticism, which drew this dichotomy uh, between the material and the immaterial, uh, Jesus could not have been truly man. It would have dis- destroyed his deity, destroyed his perfection. And so this was a, a, a evident strain in the, in the early church, especially in the second century. That's the period from 100 to 200. That's when you have full-blown Gnosticism enter into the picture. Now, you had certain strains of Gnosticism in the late first century, between about 60 A.D. and 100 A.D., and that was part of the problem that uh, John dealt with in the first epistle of John, and we studied that. And that another term for this was called docetism, from the Greek noun dokeo, meaning to seem or to appear. And the docetics just thought that Jesus appeared or he seemed to be human. 
And this is what the Apostle John was dealing with, with in the first chapter, in first verse, when he said, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled. So he's talking about the fact that we know Jesus was in the flesh. He, was, he didn't just appear to be so. So what is the biblical evidence for the humanity of, of Jesus? The first evidence, the first evidence is that he had human ancestry. We've studied this, Matthew chapter 1, uh, Luke 3, 23 and following, uh, Romans 1, 3, all talk about the fact that Jesus had a human ancestry and give us that genealogy. In, in uh, Matthew, he goes back to Abraham. In Luke, he goes back to Adam, showing that, and the purpose in both of those genealogies, while Matthew's is to show that he is in the uh, royal line and is Jewish, the implication there is he's got to be a man. In Luke's genealogy, he takes him back to Adam, emphasizing that he is a descendant of Adam and thus a man. So the first line of evidence is that Jesus had a human ancestry. He had a human genealogy. The second line of evidence for his humanity is that he had a genuine human birth. He had a genuine human birth. This is found in Matthew 1, 18 to 2, 12, and Luke 1, 26 to 38. We're familiar with these passages. At Christmas, we read the accounts of the birth of our Savior. We're familiar with what took place when Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem and there was no room for them at the at the inn, which wasn't a hotel like you think of. It was more like a like a roadside park where caravans camped out and they ended up having to stay in a in a shoveled out cave, which is where the, the livestock spent the night. And that's the story of the manger. We're familiar with the fact that he is pictured in the Bible as having a genuine human birth. Also, another passage to look at that we have studied in the past is Galatians 4.4. In the fullness of times, he came. So this emphasizes his that, that Jesus was born just like the rest of us are born. Third, line of evidence that Jesus had Jesus was true humanity is the titles that were ascribed to Jesus and we've gone over these many times these first three or four points are pretty are fairly redundant so I'm not taking time to to go through the details uh, we've studied the the um, titles of Jesus first of all he has a human name Jesus or Yeshua which is etymologically related to Joshua, and it's based on the Hebrew verb yasha, which means to save or to deliver. But it is a human name. It was a common name. Now, in Anglo uh, Anglo communities, we don't have too many people named Jesus, but if you go south of the border, you find all kinds of folks named Jesus. And it is a was a common name. In uh, Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture, we don't usually name anyone the, the, the same name as Jesus. You might find a few people named Joshua, but we don't name them Jesus. But in Hispanic culture, you find a lot of uh, people named Jesus. And in, indeed, in a Jewish culture of the first century, this was not an uncommon name. The, also, you have uh, 
the title Son of Man used 82 times in the Scripture to refer to Jesus. This term Son of Man describes him as a human being. When you have this phraseology in the in the um, uh, Hebrew, son of something, it was a description of who they were. If they were a liar, they might be called a son of a liar. That's not saying anything about their parentage. If they were a fool, they would be called a son of a fool. If they were uh, a murderer, they would be called a son of a murderer. If they were a particularly debauched or perverted individual, then they were called an SOB, that is a son of Belial. So it all just glad somebody's awake this morning. So whatever came after the son of is the description of that individual, his character. So when Jesus is called the son of man, it's saying he is fully human. He was also called the son of Abraham now in that phrase and in that context with the genealogy in Matthew 1.1. That is a description of descent, not character. He is a son of Abraham and a son of David. So all of those titles indicate that Jesus was truly human. A fourth line of evidence of his humanity is that Jesus had all three elements of a human nature. He had a human body, a human soul, and a human spirit. Now, we know from Scripture that man is composed of three parts. This is called trichotomy. Because of spiritual death, men are born only with two parts, a human body and a human soul, not a human spirit. Now, that always causes some people a little frustration if they haven't heard that taught before because they, they look at the Scripture and they say, well, over here it talks about the spirit of Pharaoh, and over here it talks about this unbeliever who, uh, in terms of a spirit, well, there are many different uses of the word spirit in the Scripture. Some are technical and some are just more generic. But there is a technical use of spirit that indicates that immaterial part of man which allows him to have a relationship with God. So we have a human body and a human soul. And when Adam was created, he had another immaterial element that we call the human spirit that allowed his soul to understand God, to communicate with God, and to have a relationship with God. But at spiritual death, he lost that. But it is these three components together that make a human being. Now, the reason this is important is because in the early part of the church, there was some debate for a hundred years or more as to just exactly how the humanity of and the deity of Christ were joined together. In what sense is he human? In what sense is he divine? And we will get into this more in more detail next week. But in the approach to that, one of the options was presented by a man named Apollinarius. Now, Apollinarius, it ended up being, uh, being orthodox at the Council of Nicaea because he rejected Arianism. But when it came to his understanding of how the deity and humanity of Christ were joined together, well, he didn't do so well. He believed Jesus had a human body, and he had a human soul, but the Lagos principle replaced the human spirit. So he didn't have a human spirit, instead he had a Lagos. Well, if he doesn't have a human spirit, if he just has a human body and a human soul, then he's not truly man, is he? He's only two-thirds human, and he's one-third deity. 
So early church went, no, that's not right. You've diminished his humanity, and he's not really fully God either. So that option was rejected. So the question then is, how do we understand this? Well, let's just see what the, what the Bible teaches in a few passages, emphasizing that Jesus has all three elements of humanity. Matthew 26, 12, talking about uh, uh, Mary when she uh, anoints his body prior to his going to the cross. For when she poured this perfume on my body, Jesus said, Matthew 26, 26, at the, at the Passover meal, the night before he went to the cross, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. I'm going to run through a lot of scriptures very quickly. I'm just pointing out in many cases one phrase which demonstrates the point. So you might want to, instead of trying to flip around in your Bibles to hit every point, watch the screen or just make a note of the references. Otherwise, You'll get a little frustrated. Matthew twenty six twenty eight. Jesus said, For this is my blood of the covenant. He must be physical, have a physical body to have blood. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Luke two twenty one. When eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. That Both the conception in the womb and circumcision emphasize the fact that he had a physical body. Luke twenty four thirty nine. See my hands and my feet? means he has a human body. It is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. This is at the res- after the resurrection when he is talking to the disciples. Touch me. Feel me. I'm physical. Even though it was a resurrection body, it's still physical material. John 2.21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So Jesus is seen as having a genuine human body. Hebrews 2.14, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that is flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And then Psalm 10.5, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And this is a statement, I think, of Jesus' deity at the point of the incarnation. He recognizes that God the Father has prepared a human body for him. And at that instant, he is making this statement that this is a body you have prepared for me just as the second person of the Trinity then enters into that human body. Hebrews 10.10, but this will, we have, by, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus Christ had a truly human body. It was uh, born of Mary. I don't think there is any reason to say that it was... Uh, uh, it did not have a sin nature, but in terms of a human body, it did not look any different from anybody else's human body. It was not a human body that was uh, not subject to other limitations of a human body. I mean, you, you wouldn't see Jesus walk in the back of the room and go, wow, he really looks different. You wouldn't think that. You probably wouldn't be able to pick him out of a crowd. It was a 
perfect. It was a human body. He didn't possess any sin, but that doesn't mean that it was not subject to other limitations of the human body which are not related to sin. Furthermore, we know that Jesus had a soul. Now, let me remind you of a soul. A soul is a term describing the, the, the immaterial parts of a man, his, his self-consciousness. When he looks in the mirror, you know who you are. That is, on a good day, if you've had a cup of coffee. You have a mentality. You can think. You can reason. You can d- develop different thoughts and ideas. You have a... Uh, you have a conscience where your norms and standards reside. You have absolutes. You have a sense of right and wrong. It may be screwed up and distorted, but you have a sense of right and wrong. So you have a self-consciousness. You have a mentality. You have a conscience, and you have volition. You make choices. You ha- make responsible choices. You are accountable for the decisions you make. When you make bad decisions, you suffer the consequences. When you make good decisions, you reap the rewards. So we ha- that's the soul. Jesus had a human soul. This is stated in various passages, Matthew twenty six thirty eight. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved. Another point to mention there is the fact that he has real, genuine sorrow, the expression of emotion. At, at that point, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. John twelve twenty seven. Now my soul has become troubled. Acts two twenty seven, according to the Old Testament, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades. This is a a quote of the Lord Jesus Christ in fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. So Jesus had a human soul. He also had a human spirit. Now, the human spirit is that immaterial part of man that interacts with the soul, with the components of the soul, so that the self-consciousness can have a, a consciousness of God, so that the mentality can think the thoughts of God after him, so that the conscience can have the norms and standards of God in it, and so that the volition can choose to obey God. The spirit is that which was lost when Adam died spiritually when he disobeyed God. God had warned him in Genesis 2, uh, 17, that in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of, e- of good and evil, you will certainly die. When he ate of the fruit, he lost something. Something died. Not his physical death. He didn't die for another 930 years. But he died Spiritually, when he ate of that fruit, he lost something. When you're born again, you acquire something that enables you to have a relationship with God, to understand God, to understand the things of God, to understand his word. That is called regeneration or spiritual birth. It occurs when you put your faith alone in Christ alone. When you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, at that instant, God the Holy Spirit creates and simultaneously imparts to you that human spirit, and you are born again. Jesus was born with a human spirit. He was not born spiritually dead. Mark 2.8, immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves. Uh, Mark 8.12, sighing deeply in his spirit. Luke 23.46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. John 11:33 uh, uh he was de- the last clause he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled 
John 13:21 when Jesus had said this he became troubled in spirit so he has body soul and spirit human body human soul human spirit all this indicating that he is true humanity fifth line of evidence of his humanity is that he was subject to all the laws of human development he had to learn how to talk he had to learn uh, many things about life. He had to learn how to hold a fork or a spoon, they, whatever they had for eating utensils at the time. He had to learn how to drink. He had to learn. Uh, he had to be taught manners. He had to learn how to speak. He had to uh, go through all of those processes that every single human being goes through in the process of physical growth and social development and interaction. We know that that he didn't just memorize Scripture in his deity. In his deity, he knew all of the Scripture. But in his humanity, he had to go through the process of memorizing Scripture. And we went to passages in Isaiah chapter uh, 55, I believe, that talked about how Jesus would get up early in the morning. He says it's a messianic prophecy. It's a messianic prophecy where Jesus emphasized that, uh, or emphasizes the Messiah would get up early in the morning and be taught by God. So he learned in his humanity, but he had a special teacher in God, the Holy Spirit, who was, who was teaching him the word and about his plan and purposes. These, his human development is summarized in two passages in Luke. Luke 2.40 states, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Wisdom is the application of doctrine. So Jesus is going through the same process that you go through in learning the Word of God. Only trouble is, he only difference is, he doesn't have a sin nature that gets in the way. Your sin nature gets in the way. But Jesus had to grow and increase in wisdom. That's part of the precedent that he is setting in terms of the spiritual life. One thing we will emphasize in detail starting next week as we look at the hypostatic union and understanding it is many people think that when Jesus is learning or Jesus is having to apply the word that it's easier for him because he was relying on his deity. But if at any stage along the way he is bailing out, so to speak, and relying on his deity, then how is that a model for us in problem solving and handling the details of life? It's no model whatsoever because if he's relying on, on his deity, then we can't emulate that. But he is setting a pattern and an example for us so that he is living his life in his humanity, and only rarely does he access his deity. Now, it's always there. He is 100% divine. He has omniscience and omnipotence, but he doesn't always access. In fact, most of the time, he did not access it. He lived as a finite human being should live in complete dependence upon God. So physically, he grew and became strong. Uh, but spiritually he increased in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Luke 2.52, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So he is increasing in wisdom. That is his uh, knowledge and understanding of the world and Bible doctrine and application statures physically. And in favor with God and man shows his uh, relationship and fellowship with God and his social dimension, his relationship and fellowship with other human beings. So that was the fifth point.
in his humanity, he uh, grew and developed just as every other human being grows and develops. The sixth point, Jesus was called a man. The Bible clearly refers to him as a man in numerous passages. For example, in John 1, 30, John the Baptist says, This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So in that one sentence, John the Baptist is saying, He is a man who's coming after me, but he existed before me, which indicates his deity, his eternality, which John the Baptist recognized. Uh, John 10.33, the Jews answered him and said, For a good work, we do not stone you, but for a blasphemy, because you being a man... Make yourself out to be God. So the Jews, his enemies, and this is not the Jews as a race. This is the Jewish religious leaders. Remember, John, the apostle, is writing this, and he too is Jewish. The Jews uh, recognized he was a human being. Acts 2.22, Peter said, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God. Peter affirms his humanity. Romans 5.15, Paul says, uh, But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. He is true humanity. Uh, furthermore, he is called a man in other passages, such as 1 Corinthians 15.21. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, a reference to the resurrection of Christ. Philippians 2.8, being found in appearance as a man. And there it's not talking about simply dokeo, that's not the word there, but that he was a man. He had all of the uh, appearance and realities of a human being. 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Again and again, the Bible affirms the true humanity of Jesus Christ. Jesus also uh, said that he was a man. John eight forty. but as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth. Jesus affirmed his own humanity. Now, the eighth line of evidence for Jesus' humanity is that he was subject to all human experiences. If you look at the description of Jesus throughout the Gospels, you see that it presents him as a true human being who has all of the experiences common to all of us. For example, in Matthew 4, 2, after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Now, some people would say, well, you know, he had to have some little help there to make it for 40 days and 40 nights. Well, that's not true. If you've ever done any kind of study on fasting, you can go that long. Any of us can go that long. After about a day and a half or two days, your appetite shuts shuts down, and it doesn't start kicking in again, I understand, until about 40 days. I haven't gone that long. I've gone for five days. Uh, one time, but after you start eating, your appetite returns, or at the end of 40 days, your body's kicking in again going, it's really necessary, This it's, it's about time to end this or you'll be dead. So this indicates his humanity, that he had the same basic systems that we have in his, um, in his eating. After he'd fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Uh, Matthew 21, 18, now in the morning when he was returning to the city, he became Hungry. 
was also thirsty on the cross. He uh, said, just Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the Scripture said, I am thirsty. Furthermore, when he was uh, traveling, he would become weary. And when he was in Samaria, Jacob's well, Jesus being wearied from his journey. When he was weary, he slept. Matthew 8:24. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. Jesus also expressed human love. Uh, Mark 10:21. Looking at him, Jesus loved him, and said to him, "All of this indicates Jesus' humanity." One of the things, though, that we all have trouble with is Jesus' emotions. See, people tend to go from one extreme to another when it comes to emotion. Either you want to be all emotional and make everything sentimental and uh, just almost saccharine sweet, or some people go to the other extreme because they're trying to avoid all the hyper-emotionalism evident in our culture today, and they try to say, well, Jesus really wasn't, he didn't have emotions, or he wasn't emotional. We try to, uh, we almost get to the point, you hear some people, they like any emotion is a sin. But that's not true, and we've discussed a lot of this in the past, so I'm not going to do a detailed discussion on this, but we start with the fact that man is in the image of God. We are in the image and likeness of God. Now, God, there's a lot of discussion today on just the nature of God, you have a heretical view called open theism. In an open theism, God doesn't know anything about the future. He can make some good educated guesses, but he's open to the future. That's where the term comes from. He, he gets surprised a few times, and he makes some changes in his plans here or there. And uh, one of the counters to open theism is a traditional... Orthodox doctrine that has been around since the early church called the impassibility of God. M is a negative prefix, and passable is the same root, Latin root, from which we get our word passion. And passion refers to emotion, not necessarily intense emotion, not necessarily suffering, although it can mean that too, that's a cognate word, but it means that suffering or emotions does not enter into the essence of God, that God is immutable. He never changes. Therefore, when things change at the level of the creation, it doesn't change the Creator. He is immutable. He is impassable. Now, that doesn't mean God is some block of concrete up there that doesn't understand. See, what's happened in the last 150 years is we've gotten so in touch with our emotions due to psychobabble that we think that emotion is what makes you capable of having a relationship with anybody. But emotion is not what makes you capable. In fact, in a lot of reasons, emotion is what destroys your ability to have a relationship with anybody. It is your intellect. It is who you are. It's your personality. It's other dimensions of who you are. Emotion is is part of that. And so the first question that I've dealt with and done this extensively is whether or not God has emotion. And emotion is a response. And it's a response to what is in our thinking. 
what we believe to be true or what we think is true or how we perceive things. And the result of that is we have certain emotional responses. And we go to a passage such as uh, Ezekiel, uh, Exodus where God is angry at Israel because they've built the golden calf. Did God just learn about that then? No. God had known about it for all eternity. So is God eternally angry at Israel in terms of emotion? Is God eternally angry? No, he's not. But what's going on there? Well, we have two figures of speech in the Bible. One's called an anthropomorphism from the word morphe meaning like meaning form, physical form, and this is when you attribute human form to God that he doesn't actually possess. We talk about the hands of God, the finger of God, the eyes of God go to and fro throughout the whole earth. Well, God doesn't have eyes, God doesn't have hands and feet like we and I, like you and I do. So these are just figures of speech that are designed to communicate something about God's plans and purposes in human history. You also have something called an anthropopathism from the uh, Greek pathos indicating emotion. Well, it's pretty much the same thing. It's attributing to God a certain emotion that he doesn't actually possess in order to be able to communicate to man at a human level uh, God's plans and purposes for, for mankind. For example, uh, Scripture says that Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Does does God actually hate Esau? No, he's rejected him. They have a juxtaposition there of love and hate. And neither one is talking about emotion. It's talking about Jacob I've accepted and approved of, and Esau I've rejected. So you have anthropomathism. Now, the interesting thing is when you get into Exodus, and it says that God's anger burned greatly against Israel, it's, that's not a literal statement. In English, we have more of a literal word, angry. But in Hebrew, the word that's translated angry is actually an anthropomorphism. It says God's nose burned. Well, does God have a nose? No. So that means that you're using an anthropomorphism to express an anthropopathism. What you're really explaining is something about how the justice of God has rejected human behavior. The emphasis here is on God's justice, and you're using a figure of speech to illustrate how harsh that is. We might do the same thing. You go to court, and the judge get boy, the judge was really mad at me today. Well, you don't want a judge to be mad at you. You don't want some emotional judge up there. If he was if he was emoting in the bench, then he he would ha- be out of order. A ju- judge is dispassionate, but if he lowers the boom at you and gives you the harshest penalty allowed by law, then you would say, "Man, he was really mad at me." See, we're expressing the rejection of justice in terms of harsh emotional terminology. Now, let's go back to our talk on image and likeness of God. If God isn't emotion, or emotional doesn't have emotion, then that's not part of the image and likeness of God. And emotion, I believe, 
resides in, it's a biochemical thing. It relies in a physical body. That doesn't mean it's sinful. Adam had emotion. Jesus had emotion. There's nothing wrong with with our emotion. This is the other part that, that Christians really don't have a good handle on. It's what happens when you're experiencing negative emotion. What happens if if you're you lose somebody in death and you're sad, you're sorrowful, you're grieving? See, see what Christians tend to do is, oh, I shouldn't be sad. I shouldn't feel wiped out. I shouldn't feel kicked in the gut because that, that's not trusting God. That's ridiculous. You've got a superficial, shallow view of emotion that is doing an injustice to the Christian life. See, this is what happens with a lot of people. Somebody you know goes through some hardship, and you say, well, just trust God. Well, that's true, but you're not being very empathetic with them. You're not recognizing the fact that they're going through a difficult time, a divorce, a loss of a loved one. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe they're going through a situation with their, with their children who are extremely rebellious. You're, you're not recognizing that there's legitimacy to the fact that they're, they're hurting. And in a sense, we almost discount that, or we treat it trivially, which is really showing a lack of respect for that individual and what they're going through. On the other hand, we don't want to wallow down in self-pity with them either. And it's interesting, you will notice this, that people who have never gone through real tragedy in their life tend to have this sort of, well, just trust the Lord. You know, God's got a plan for your life. It's all going to work out. Just, you know, hang in there, claim the promises, and go. The next time you talk to somebody and they've gone through tragedy in their life, they may say almost the same thing, but you know. You will sense that they're, they're not just giving you some sort of rote formula. They, rec- they, are, they are, on the one hand, validating the fact that, yeah, you're going through something right now that's, that's, that's really tough. And you're experiencing emotions, and you don't. And I'm not going to invalidate those emotions. What's important is what you do with them, not the fact that you deny that they exist. And we see this in Jesus' emotions. You can look look in your Bibles. You may want to underline these passages, or just I'll just hit them on the overhead. Matthew twenty six thirty seven. This is at Gethsemane. Jesus took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he began to be grieved and distressed. This is the perfect Son of God. In his deity, he never loses his happiness, his joy. He's immutable. But at the same time that he has joy, he is also grieving and he's distressed. Now somebody's saying, well, what's the Greek there? I'll get there in a minute. He's grieving and distressed. So it's not sinful to be distressed, to be agitated, to be sorrowful, maybe for a period of time because of what you've experienced in life. It's what you do with it that's the issue, not the fact that those emotions are there. See, some Christians have such a shallow, wooden, one-dimensional view of of people that their, their immediate response when somebody is really going through an emotional state is, you shouldn't be emotional, that's a sin. Well, you can be, you can experience those emotions and be emotional, and it's not a sin. It is if you start making decisions based on wrong decisions based on those emotions. Matthew twenty six thirty eight. Jesus said, "Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me.' Well, what are these Greek words? 
Oh, another passage, John 11:35. Jesus wept. When Lazarus had died and is in the, now he's in the grave for four days, when the sisters, Mary and Martha, called for Jesus and said, Lazarus is dying, he's at the point of death, you need to come, you can heal him. Jesus then dawdled. He's up in Galilee, they're down in Bethany. Jesus dawdled for a while, and he finally shows up four days after Lazarus is dead and buried. And, of course, Martha's all upset. She comes running out, and she says, Well, Jesus, if you'd been here, you could have healed him. Well, he can still raise him from the dead. I mean, she's just he's got to bring her up short. And you notice how, how Jesus handles it. In, in, in John 11, she says, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Martha, do you believe this? You know, he's not saying, Martha, you shouldn't be emotional. He's saying, okay, let's focus on the doctrine, but he does it in a very gentle, sophisticated way. And then he moves to the house, and he's coming to the house. The whole crowd of mourners are still around. There's hundreds of people there. And Jesus looks on the crowd, and he weeps. That's the context. Jesus isn't weeping because Lazarus died. Jesus isn't weeping because he is personally grieving. The context right before the, John 11.35 says that he looks on the crowd. He sees the grief of the people. He sees their sorrow. They're saying, this isn't the way God designed man. God created man so they wouldn't, there wasn't going to be death. And it demonstrates Jesus' compassion for what people are going through during a time of loss and during a time of grief. He understands what that pain and sorrow is like. He's not grieving over Lazarus. He knows in five minutes Lazarus is going to be eating dinner with him. He's going to say, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus is going to be out of the grave. But Jesus in his humanity is grieving with the mass of humanity because of the consequences of sin. So what are the words that we have here? The first word that we have that's translated in Matthew 8, 20, uh, or Matthew, Matthew 26, 37 as distressed is the word, the Greek word, adaimoneo, adaimoneo, A-D-E-M-O-N-E-O, and it means to be in anxiety. Now, this is not the word that you find over in Philippians uh, 4, 5, and 6, be anxious for nothing. This has, this has to do with a more of a physical uh, distress or concern. He is distressed. He is troubled. Uh, he knows what he's getting getting ready to go through on the cross. He knows the pain. He knows his separation from, from God during that time. He anticipates that. And, and, and this is having a physical reaction. For example, if you've ever had to get up in front of people, and maybe it's the first time and you got stage fright, and all of a sudden you know, your, your, your knees are banging next to each other and your hands are jumpy and, and, you can't, and you're stuttering, that's a physical response to an external reality. All of a sudden, your adrenaline is going nuts, and, and, and you haven't stepped into the plate yet to let, that, let that all, those chemicals level out. You're agitated. You know, Jesus was so agitated before he went to the cross that when he sweat, blood was coming out of his pores. We can't imagine the kind of distress and anxiety that this has produced, but this isn't a, this isn't worry or fear. 
which is what you're dealing with in passages like like Philippians 4, 5, and 6 and dealing with uh, 1 Peter 3, 5, uh, cast your care upon him because he cares for you. This is having to do with the physical response of, of grief and emotion. And so he is also sorrowful. This is the Greek verb lupeo, which uh, means cause severe mental or emotional distress, to be vexed, irritated, offended, insulted, sorrowful. He is sorrowful. There's a legitimacy to sorrow. Now, some Christians act like, well, if you're, sor- if you're going through sorrow or grief over something, then you're out of fellowship. You're not trusting God. Well, that's stupid. I mean, it's so superficial. And it's people who haven't ever thought about what the Scripture says. This is why I keep coming back to the fact you have to think biblically. What are, uh, what are some other passages? For example, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Oh, 4.13. Paul is talking to the Thessalonian believers who are all upset because he taught the rapture. He taught about the second coming of Christ. He taught dispensations and everything when he went to Thessalonica on his first visit. And he gets this letter from them because they all thought that every one of them was going to, the Lord was going to come back any day now, and they were all going to go to heaven. Nobody was going to die. And all of a sudden, they've had a few deaths in the congregation. Now, they don't know what's, what's going to happen. I thought Jesus was going to come back, and we weren't going to die. Well, they had mistimed the rapture. And so Paul says to them, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for those who are the believers who have died. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Notice what he says, lest you sorrow like others who have no hope. He doesn't say lest you sorrow, period. You're going to grieve, but not like those who have no hope. You're going to feel sorry. If you have a, a, a child, you lose a baby. You go through the loss of a job, loss of a career, loss of a loved one. You go through any kind of loss, you're going to go through a certain amount of grief and sorrow and sadness. Does that mean you're out of fellowship and not trusting God? Not necessarily. I mean, it may mean that. But it's it's the natural response of being a human being. It's not sin. It's part of reality. It's what you do with that. If you allow that sorrow to cause you to dive into a, a cesspool of self-pity, then you're handling it wrong and you're out of fellowship and, and you're going to just make everything worse and you're not going to be able to resolve uh, the issues and come out of it. But if you handle it by trusting God, that doesn't mean that pain in your stomach goes away overnight. That doesn't mean the heartache goes away overnight. It'll continue to come on and off like like waves. If anybody's gone through real grief, you know that one day you're doing okay. Next day you're, you're, you're enjoying a joke and it hits you right in the middle of the joke and you turn from laughing to crying. And you think, what's wrong with me? Well, you're just grieving. It's natural. You'll get past it. Claim promises. Keep going forward, but don't try to stop it. You'll get you'll get over it eventually. That's the way it is. But don't 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 try to diminish it. Don't try to invalidate it. Don't try to do that when somebody else is going through it. It is a normal normal human response. Our Lord went through it. He was human. And that doesn't mean 
that that is sinful or that emotions are sinful. So Jesus went through all of the standard emotions that we do. So what are our points? Emotions and the experience of emotions are not in themselves sinful. Second, human emotions are part of the physiologically based response mechanism God has built into each one of us. We all go through that. Every time you see certain things, you just have a, have a visceral response to it, and it's all part of, part of emotions. That's one of the reasons that so often in the Hebrew and the Old Testament that words that are used to describe emotions are organ-centered. You know, organs are, for, even in Greek, the, the word for, for compassion is splachnoid. It has to do with, with the kidneys. You know, when you get angry, your nose burns in the Hebrew. I mean, these are physiologically based uh, terms for describing emotion. Third, human emotions are often the barometer of what's going on in the soul. You know, if you're angry, you better think about what's going on in your head. If you're sad, you ought to think about it too. How are you applying doctrine? We have to be careful how we handle that. Just because somebody's a little depressed doesn't mean they're not trusting God. They could be going through grief. But if they're depressed after six six months or a year, then they have to look at what's going on doctrinally. Fourth, it's not somehow less Christian or an indication of a poor spiritual life to have genuine sorrow, distress, or despair over some things in life. That's all part of being human. And fifth, it's not experiencing the emotion that's wrong. It's what you do with them. You can generate emotional sins, sins of the tongue, and overt sins that keep you out of fellowship. But it's not experiencing the emotion that's wrong. Jesus also, that was all point number number eight. Point number nine, at times Jesus had limited knowledge, just like we do. There were things he did not know. For example, when asked about the uh, second coming, he said, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. See, we'll discuss how this happens next week. But Jesus did not know certain things in his humanity, and he didn't access them from his deity. John 11:34 when he came to to the graveside Lazarus he said where have you laid him and they said lord come and see see he's not omniscient he's not accessing his omniscience he had to ask where they put Lazarus also Jesus physically suffered and died we have all the passages in the scriptures like John 19:30 when he bowed his head and gave up his spirit John 19.34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. The separation of, of the blood into lymph and red blood cells is a clear sign of physical death. Uh, Hebrews 2.14, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus was human, fully human. Now, how does that work with his deity? He's fully God and he's fully human. How do you put that together? It took the church almost 400 years, the early church, almost 400 years to figure out how to properly articulate that. It's not that they didn't believe in his deity. It's not that they didn't didn't believe in his humanity. They didn't know how to articulate, how to express it. The Bible doesn't give us a, a, a theological statement to that effect. 
So how do we understand that? How do we put that together? Well, that's what we'll cover next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for our great Savior who was without sin, was truly human, that he could go to the cross and die as our substitute, that he could take our place, that he could bear in his body on the cross all of our sin. Father, we pray that uh, if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do right now, right where you sit, is to put your faith alone in Christ alone, to trust in Jesus Christ as the sufficient Savior, the one who did it all. You don't need to make a bargain with God. You don't need to engage in some sort of religious ritual. You don't need to try to improve your life. You simply trust that Christ did it all. Father, we thank you for what we've learned today. We pray that we might be effective witnesses because we understand the truth of your word, that we may be able to give an answer for the confidence that is in us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.